Welcome, I'm Luke Worsfold and this is the Lisa Podcast. Welcome to um, yeah, the podcast um, and on the Lisa Podcast we talk about addiction and, and things like that. So yeah, if you don't mind just giving us a bit about your background and how, what sort of journey you've been on to get us get you here. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I started, I didn't really you know, drink a lot in college, to be honest with you. I wasn't a, a huge drinker. And then I moved to New York City with my husband at the age of 26. And I landed this really amazing job and got quickly promoted. And at 26, I was the youngest VP um, in this company called, probably familiar with it, it's headquartered out of the UK. And so I was the youngest VP in the American arm of this company. And there was an instance um, when my boss actually took me aside and he'd noticed that I wasn't big into going out. And he said, Annie, I just want you to let you know that um, most kind of deals are done and people are, are you get to know people and, and things happen kind of in the pub and at the bar. And so, you know, you not showing up, um, you're not going to, you have great ideas. You're not going to get to express them. You're not going to get to build the relationships with the uppers, et cetera. So um, I wasn't really cautioned around alcohol. My parents didn't really drink. And there wasn't really a message, negative or positive. So I quite honestly didn't even realize alcohol was addictive, to be frank. And so I said, okay, so I'm going to go to the pub and I'm going to start drinking wine. And I would drink a glass of wine and a glass of water to make sure that I could keep up. You know, sometimes I remember even three or four years into it, going and um, throwing up my last glass of wine just to get out of my system because I knew it eventually would make me sick. And then I'd go back. And sure enough, you know, alcohol is addictive. And over time, it became not just at work, it became every single night. And then fast forward 10 years, and I was up to two bottles a night every night. And uh, quite miserable about it. <laughs> yeah, okay. And obviously, yeah, I've read your book, and it was, yeah, really interesting. It's a really interesting perspective. Um, but yeah, how would you say, like, how would you sort of define addiction if you had to sort of define it? Um, for me, you know, it's such a complicated, it's a really great question, Luke, actually, but for me, I would really define it as doing something I no longer wanted to be doing and feeling as if that choice to do it was out of my control. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And do you still drink now? No, I don't drink anymore. It's been almost three years. So yeah. And would you say that it's not necessarily like a progress addiction, but you can sort of like, is it, was it sort of like black and white for you? Did you sort of drink and then you stop drinking completely? It was really black and white for me. Now, um, I also, you know, I live in Colorado. So when marijuana became legal in Colorado, I kind of switched over and said, okay, this is healthier. And I started smoking. And that was much more of a, it was much harder for me to get unstuck from that addiction, I would say, because, which is interesting because marijuana is, is scientifically less addictive but for me um it it didn't really have kind of I think what happened for me is is addiction for me really scientifically you suffer withdrawal from everything you're doing and then your brain learns both kind of subconsciously and then eventually consciously that the thing that created that withdrawal is going to relieve the withdrawal and so often we drink in the evenings and we sleep through some of the worst of that withdrawal so we don't we don't really notice it. So we wake up and we don't feel great, but we don't associate that with, with the night drinking before. When I was smoking marijuana, um, it would be, you know, I'd smoke it and 30, 40 minutes later, I would start feeling really down. Like it would pick me up, but then it was, it was up and then really down. And I think alcohol does the same thing, but 
because of that, I would want to do it again within 30 or 40 minutes. And so I ended up doing it very, very constantly kind of throughout the day. And um, that was kind of probably the darkest point for me with addiction, because then when you're in it and when you're doing it and when you're not conscious of your, your mind is so altered by the substance, whether it's alcohol marijuana. And so when someone starts drinking every single day, all day long, or smoking every single day, all day long, you're never even really coherent enough to make enough of a shift to stop that cycle. Like you can't even ask yourself the right questions, because you're on such a, a bender, if you will. And, um, and I think that, you know, that really had a much more uh, physical hold on me kind of than alcohol did because I had, um, you know, I quit alcohol pretty easily and I felt really free from alcohol. And so when I stopped, when I stopped smoking, I think it was in fits and starts at first, but now, you know, I, I had a slightly different approach to it and, and now I'm free again, which is great. So <laughs> just took, took a different, a different tact to be honest. Yeah. yeah it's really interesting. Just like a bit of my background, cause that really resonates with me is my mom was an alcoholic um, and she fortunately like isn't with us any longer. Um, mm. But I always grew up thinking, you know, I'm never going to be like my mum. I'm never going to be an alcoholic and drink. So I didn't really like go out and socialise or, or sort of, you know, partake in those kind of activities. I sort of was more of an introvert and smoked weed, and I didn't really see what was happening. I was just like, yeah, I'm just a stoner, you know. I just smoke weed every day. And then when I turned around and looked, I was like, wait, I'm no better. I may not be, you know, drinking alcohol, but I'm still like addicted to this substance. And like you say it almost became, for me anyway, like so consistent. Like I'd always be stoned from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to bed for like years. <laughs> it was just crazy to think about. Um, and, yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that it's almost harder to sort of quit that than, say, like alcohol. I think, you know, the people who I've spoken to who do the same thing, the moment they wake up, they have their first drink to the moment they go to bed, um, I think they find it much harder to quit than people who are, you know, just drinking kind of near the end of the day or whatnot. And I think the same thing, when you're doing that um, every single moment, your brain is so addled with the substance that you don't actually have the presence of mind to question it, but you literally feel like you're in a prison. Like, I remember having a few moments of clarity kind of in the morning, and like, okay, not today. But the thing about it, Luke, is the cravings are so intense when with addiction. Like, um, what happens because your body is feeling so uncomfortable because of the withdrawal from the drug in the first place that you you know it becomes instinctive it becomes almost biologically evolutionary instinctive that you know this thing will make it better and so a craving like is akin to a beating drum and it's so loud and it's right there and you know the one thing that can make it stop is doing more of that drug and um, and that craving is like so intense it feels like your skin is on fire it feels like you can't, it feels like you're powerless against it and then when you do that drug it relieves it but then it puts you right back into that kind of prison because when you're on the other side of it i remember and the, the great thing about marijuana in a way is that you can journal and write like when i was really drunk i wasn't had didn't have the presence of mind to kind of write but when i was smoking I felt like I could really be like, how does this feel? This does not feel nice to me anymore. There's no joy here. There's no peace here. You know, I'm isolated from my friends. I'm isolated from my family. I'm, I'm really in my own little bubble with these repetitive thoughts. And like, I did a lot of just kind of writing about what that felt like for me. And, um, and so it was like either like you're between a rock and a hard place. Either you're dealing with this horrific craving that you can't shut off 
or you're trapped in this place where your brain isn't all the way there and it doesn't actually feel good because all the joy has been stolen from the experience in the first place because your body, I mean, that's the, that's the thing about our brains is we're not passive, you know, we're reactive. And so when you put something like alcohol into your system, that's a depressant, it floods your brain with counter chemicals, right? And those counter chemicals aren't nice. And, and same with, you know, any addictive drug is, is your brain tries to maintain balance and tries to maintain homeostasis. But often the chemicals that come from your own body trying to maintain homeostasis, trying to either purge the drug from your system or trying to make it so that you can function are somewhat more painful in certain instances and certainly more toxic in the case of alcohol than um, than the original drug. For example, alcohol comes into your system and your body creates something called acetaldehyde to purge alcohol from your system. And acetaldehyde is so uh, toxic that even just the amount of acetaldehyde created from one drink would never be allowed in any sort of food or drink. Like it would, it would have been banned because it would be like, that is a toxic substance. And that's what your body has, is forced to create in order to protect you from the alcohol. So, I mean, it's just this cycle that's, you know, I mean, I think that addiction is probably one of the saddest and most painful human conditions because it consumes the human being alive and it deceives the human being into thinking that somehow they're in control of it or it's their fault where, you know, biologically it would do the same thing to mice. You know, mice have been studied and they, once they've become addicted to a substance, they will ignore their young, they'll forego food, they'll forego water to the point where they like literally starve themselves to continue to push the button that administers that substance. And so to be stuck in that kind of cycle, um, it's, it's truly a prison and it's truly horrific. Yeah, I think you're familiar with Jason Vow as well. And I, I um, listened to his like quit smoking app and explained in that like the theory of the rats of they press the button and once I sort of understood that it really helped me sort of change like the shift in my thinking and I think the like theory the like theory approach is really good to in order to like understand what's happening and even if I like relapsed a couple of times um, and still went back and smoked weed it was my mindset was different so like you said about that like the the I think you said in your book cognitive dissonance where you have one part of you that knows it's wrong and one part of you that still wants it that was like more painful if that makes sense because I was yeah. like read books and like do personal development and stuff like that while I was stoned I was like but I'm getting stoned like I'm stoned right now it just didn't make sense and it was just like yeah it was it was crazy experience I guess and, and that's true. I mean, I, I liken it to this idea that if we were to see, you know, somebody fighting on the street or witness conflict like in our family or if we were to fight with even just like if you and I were to start arguing right now, we would both walk away pretty shattered, right? We, we don't even know each other too well and we'd walk away and it would probably stick with us all week long. It would be a painful experience. Yet, um, who is more painful to argue with than your very self, than the person that you are with all the time? And so that internal conflict, I think, personally, is the source of pain in addiction. And that pain, we just are trying to numb it out. I remember times where I'd be drinking and smoking and I would call it obliviate. Like, okay, I'm just going to obliviate. Like, if I just have a little bit more, then it will be to the point where I can just become unconscious. I was literally trying to erase the internal dialogue inside my brain because it was so incredibly painful at that point in time. Cause I was like you, I was very awakened to what I was doing and I very much wanted to make a shift. Um, one thing I will say is, you know, this sounds a lot like gloom and doom and it certainly is horrible, but often, you know, with my work, people often find my work 
well before they're kind of at the the 24-7 phase, and especially with alcohol, because that was my experience with alcohol. Um, my big wake up with alcohol was the first you know, a few times I drank in the morning. It was like, okay, this is a problem. Um, and so it's a much different experience. Uh, at that stage, it, it is mostly mental um, because you really can stop for periods of time where you can have the mental clarity to understand the concepts to free yourself. However, at the stage that you and I are talking about, where you can't stop, where you wake up and that drum is beating and, and literally you're like, okay, I'm just going to wait until noon today. I mean, I had to think I was just going to wait until 420 because that's, you know, 420 and I wanted to make it funny at least, <laughs> at least some humor in the pain. Um, and, and I wouldn't make it. I mean, you know, and that's how the drum would be too loud. But but when you have that that level, I honestly think you need to remove the substance from your proximity. And um, with marijuana, that's slightly easier to do because in most parts of the world, it's not legal. Um, I flushed it all and then you can go back to the store and buy it. Like that's pretty typical and that's not the best idea. But if you can do something to get at least, you know, five to seven days away from it. And that's why rehabs have their place, right? Is because getting away from the substance to the point where it's not an option does two things. Number one, when it's not an option, your craving diminishes. It's phenomenal, but the mind is that strong. And this has been proven over and over. They did experiments where people would be heroin addicts and they'd go to prison and they would not experience the same type of withdrawals that they would experience when they were back in their old haunts and they knew they could get heroin and were trying to quit. Um, but if they went to prison and there was no option, they had much less of those cravings and withdrawal symptoms. So making it just absolutely not an option. And then, of course, it gives you enough time to have the presence of mind during that time you really start to understand your addiction and you start to do the research. And, and like you said, Jason Vale, all of these people and all of these resources that are available to you, um, you dig in so that you can start to understand it and start to, to make the decision, uh, which, which, you know, but you have to be able to separate yourself long enough from the substance. So I say very clearly kind of, I'm starting a new thing called the 30 day alcohol experiment. And it's for this very purpose. It's just to, to stop long enough to give presence of mind, but equally, I don't think with alcohol specifically, considering it's everywhere and we're so saturated with it, um, if you're at the point where you literally can't resist a drink, I, I, I have this huge disclaimer, like I think that you need some additional support, you know, in person, like an online course probably isn't going to be quite enough for you at that stage because you have to be able to break that. Otherwise, you just continue to feel like you're just completely um, enmeshed. Yeah, and, and where do you feel like counselling and perhaps like rehab has its place? And how do you feel like that perhaps like some people that I've researched say that addiction is linked to like childhood trauma and like like hiding from the pain, but like you say, it almost creates the cycle of pain anyway. But how do you see that relating? Oh yeah, so um, that's a great question. And, and it's really interesting because like I'm just going to speak specifically about alcohol because um, two reasons. Number one, there's just infinitely more research on alcohol than there is in marijuana, so I don't have the same depth of knowledge because uh, it hasn't been studied to the same extent. And number two, because that you know that's what I wrote the book on. That's kind of like where my passion is. It's where I see the most pain and damage in our society. But with alcohol, um, it's an anesthetic. So and and I I suppose anecdotally I'd say marijuana is too. Although I have no science to prove it, but medically, scientifically, alcohol is an anesthetic. And so what that means is that it's going to numb your pain. And the amazing thing about alcohol is that it numbs your pain um, emotionally 
because it actually slows how quickly your neurons fire. So your brain and your thinking slow. And then, you know, you can't think about your pain. I mean, obviously, if you drink enough to be unconscious, you're not in pain during the time that you're unconscious. Um, but equally, just a few drinks will numb your pain because it makes your thinking slower. But it also numbs physical pain. They used to use alcohol as a... Um, as an anesthetic for surgery. And interestingly, they stopped using it because it was too toxic. So think about that one for a minute. But in any case, um, it numbs your pain. And so if you take your first drink and, and you're a generally happy person, like that was me, right? Like I was a generally happy person. I didn't have childhood trauma. Um, I took my first drink and I really, uh, okay, kind of made me feel fuzzy. I like to feel on top of it. So I probably took my first drink, you know, as most teenagers do sometime in high school, um, I don't actually remember my first drink because it was so uneventful, right? And then you go on and then over time, for me, when it really changed my relationship with alcohol, I was in significant pain. I was, you know, I had this crazy job. We had two kids. I was traveling all around the world. I was away from my children. I was trying to numb the pain of separation because I had really big cognitive dissonance around that. And I was just also you know, we were going through the roughest time in our marriage, all sorts of things kind of conspired to when I took that drink, the numbing effect of the pain was so significant that my mind, both biologically and, you know, psychologically became much more attracted to the substance. And that's true for childhood trauma. So if you are in a situation and, and you talk to, you know, people who, who call themselves alcoholics and they say, this is how I know I'm different. I know I'm different because when I was 15 and I took that first drink, it was like I had finally come into myself. It was like the lights had come on and I knew who I was for the first time and I felt whole for the first time in my entire life. Well, guess what? That's because you numbed the trauma. You numbed the pain. And so, of course, you felt like that. For the first time in your life, there was something that almost instantly took away that horrific experience or that those decades of horrific experiences. And even if it was just simple social anxiety, where it was really painful for you to be around other people, that first drink in an instance of anxiety, it does the exact same thing. It takes away that pain. And so and all of a sudden, your first drink becomes an epiphany. It becomes this moment where you're like, this is what I've been missing. And of course, it takes away the pain. But I love how the author of Alcohol explained, William Porter explains it. He explains it on a, uh, you know, happiness is a hundred scale. And he says, okay, if happiness is a hundred, um, that first drink takes you up to 105. But as it leaves your system, it takes you back down. Your baseline becomes 98 instead of 100. Second drink will take you up to 104, baseline 97. And then it does that on a repeatedly decreasing scale to the point where you're you're truly like a, a drinker entrenched in a mesh and addiction alcohol isn't making you happy anymore. And that was me. Like I would, I would drink, you know, almost two bottles of wine a night. I wasn't even feeling it. I had such tolerance that that relief ceased to exist. But by that time you've built these cravings because your brain has said, ah, that's the relief to stress. And it, it, it stress is quite toxic. And so it's built these cravings. Equally what's happened is that in an attempt to maintain homeostasis, it has been combating this constant flux of alcohol for so long that when you don't have the alcohol in your system, when you try to just have one drink, you, you're rushed with a whole load of natural chemicals that are expecting, you know, five glasses of wine. And so you feel quite off balance and one drink becomes like almost impossible. Yeah, so how would you say you sort of go from it relieving the, that sort of pain um, but I believe you say in your book that it almost yeah creates stress in the sense that like every drop like lead, led to more stress. Um, if I'm paraphrasing what you said, something like that. So how would you then get from 
that, or understand that realization, then get out of that. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think you know, if you're in a situation where you can't stop drinking. Um, like my book, for instance, you have to be, you need to be sober to read it. You need to be sober and willing to really ingest the concepts and say, okay, how does this apply in my life? Right. And so if you can't get there, like I said before, you need to find a place or a set of support where you are removed, where the, the option to drink or smoke or do whatever you're doing is literally removed from you. And and that's the first thing. And I think that's where, where rehabs have their place, where counselors have their place, or one-on-one, you know, even sponsors have their place. Um, but then once you're there, I think that understanding is truly the key. I know it was for me, it is for you, it is for thousands and thousands of people I've spoken to, is that the, the brilliant thing is that we're not mice, you know? We're not mice. So mice will never have the ability to understand that the very thing they keep going for is actually killing them. They couldn't have that ability. We do. We have the ability to understand how addiction works. We have the ability to understand how the brain works. And by understanding it, it starts to loosen its hold. I'd say the other really important thing is that, you know, you have a lifetime of unconscious conditioning around your substance. And and that unconscious conditioning comes from two things. It comes from your observations. And with alcohol, observations are paramount from TV commercials to seeing our parents to seeing our colleagues drink and relieve stress and all that sort of thing. But then more importantly, with addiction, it comes from your experience. And your experience is that if you're in pain when you have that drink, it relieves it because it anesthetizes it. And so when it relieves it, your experience tells you alcohol relieves stress or you know whatever your substance is. And so that, that becomes very deeply unconsciously ingrained. But when you can see that actually, okay, let's look at it objectively from two perspectives, right? Let's look at it objective from my own experience. If you can have the presence of mind to start asking yourself the questions, Annie, now that you drink every day, is your life more or less stressful than before you drank every day? Oh, well, it's, it's a lot more stressful. Okay, once you drink, maybe you feel a little bit better for, you know, the evening that you're drinking because you never stop drinking until you go to sleep or pass out at night. Um, but how stressed are you the next morning when you wake up? Oh, I'm really actually a lot more stressed. So you did this internal reflection. You say, wow, like over the long term, it's not really my stress. But then even more powerfully, you do the external reflection. And I think that's what books like Jason Vale and my book like do so well is they say, okay, let's compare this to like objective reality. Let's look at how alcohol, like actually behaves. And there was this great study that was done. It was two sets of mice and mice are you know, 90%, I believe, similar genetically to humans. So they're great test subjects. And what happened was they gave them alcohol for 30 days and then the control group, no alcohol. And then they hooked them up to all sorts of monitors and ran them through an obstacle course and measured how stressed they were from all these stressors in this obstacle course, scared them, whatever. And the mice that had not been drinking for 30 days were infinitely better able to handle the stress. Their heart rates didn't increase as fast. They were able to recover faster. They just were better equipped biologically to handle stressful situations. And so you look at that objectively. And then you think about the fact that if you are drinking to numb your stress, you're never addressing your stress. And I think that's one of the most important things. You know, when I was drinking to numb my anxiety about public speaking, for example, I wasn't actually addressing the anxiety 
which would have led me to prepare for the speech or to really practice the speech. Instead, I was in the bar drinking. And then when I get up on stage, you know, of course I feel incredibly stressed because I hadn't prepared. So if you are drinking so much that you aren't actually addressing the causes of stress in your life, and same with childhood trauma, you know, those things can be addressed through counseling, through therapy, um, through support systems. And if you drink to address it instead of going through the step to address it, you're making your problem worse. It's like a Band-Aid over a festering wound that actually needs antibiotics. You know, it's it's not solving or healing anything. It's just putting a Band-Aid over it to let it fester and actually get worse over time. Yeah, okay. And you kind of touched on it a bit there, but one last question. How do you sort of deal with the things you drank to forget before? Yeah, I think that that is the question, right? And I think it's one of the most beautiful gifts of um, overcoming addiction and one of the most terrifying things. And because it is so terrifying to imagine, we don't believe, especially when we've been dealing with something with this substance for so long, we don't believe we can. We have been telling ourselves that we are worthless because we can't overcome this addiction. And that message of worthlessness has translated into all sorts of other stuff. And we don't think that we are strong enough to deal with the hard things that happened to us in our past. And um, once you stop drinking you are or doing your drugs, you're forced to look at that stuff. And you're forced to realize two things, I think. You're forced to realize that um, it, it's going to be scary and it's going to be hard, but you can do it. Like, you are a human being. And just by being a human being, you have a brain that's infinitely more powerful than any computer. You have an ability for love and compassion and joy that you just have lost touch with. And so every single win on that end, every time that you deal with something that has formerly brought you stress, say social situations or anxiety, your brain is learning that you are as smart and powerful as I'm telling you you are, because it's really true. We all are. It's not like some certain humans are able to deal with the most horrific things. No, throughout history, all humans are able to deal with the most horrific things when they are not addled by a substance and when they are not poisoning themselves to the point where they're not allowing themselves to. So that's why I say it's the most beautiful thing is because it forces you to take the steps. And I would say, yes, those steps, you know, very much. Yeah, read the self-help books, find the support groups, pay for the therapy. Imagine how much you are paying for your substance or how much you are paying in lost productivity time. You know, go through and do the work because the work becomes the most rewarding and most empowering work of your entire life because it, it you can do it. I mean, it is, it is doable. You are human and you are strong and you can do it. Um, we just, we just let ourselves to believe we can't because we've been anesthetizing it for so long. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that seems like a, a nice place to end actually. Um, but yeah. yeah, thanks very much for yeah coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you. It's been great. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. As always, thanks for listening and if you enjoyed this episode, please share and I really wish you well on your journey to serenity.